0: to The Tactile World. This is a series that is about the world of care work and the people who do it. Um, we're really interested here in sort of thinking about how the work of care gets done um, in, in 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 comparison to um, the tech industry or the finance industry or the real estate industry, these things, or the entertainment industry, these things that are um, very, um, valorized and very front and center on the cover of Wired Magazine or the front page of the New York Times or Wall Street Journal. Um, this whole discussion is about, um, all the work that people do, um, that is not on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Um, and all the work that is so necessary for, um, human society to live and survive and exist. Um, this is called by um, a lot. Some scholars, uh, reproductive labor, which means the labor that allows the workforce or the society to reproduce itself, which includes child rearing, um, medical care, elder care, um, like just raising and nurturing and creating people and making sure they stay alive so that you can have an economy at all. Um, those things are often very um, sort of um occluded and, dis- and, 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 and put aside and, and shadowed. Um, and so what we're trying to do here is talk to people who do care work about their experiences and sort of understand and sort of see how this work uh, fits and sits um, a little differently in the context of um, this post-industrial kind of economy that you have in the United States or other economically advanced countries such as uh, Japan or countries of Western Europe, um, or even for that matter, um, all all societies, all countries, all 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 cultures have care. Like every culture has to have child rearing and and medical treatment and elder care and therapy and you know emotional support. All these things are kind of universal, and so it's not just a, a quality of our society. The question we're looking at here is is what role it plays in the broader political economy of um, this particular society and this particular culture and sort of understanding it better so that we can see how it relates to these other industries and how we should understand um, the work that people do and the just purpose of keeping all of us you know, alive and functioning and being people. So that's kind of the theme of the whole project. Um, and so today, we have a very special guest. Hey,
1: um, I'm Tanya Martinez, and I am a registered nurse, and I work in the surgical ICU in uh, New York City.
0: Well, thank you so much, um, Tanya, for being here. Um, we're we're kind of I'm kind of interested in the question of like, did you always know that this is what you wanted to do? Um, or did it like, did that career decision or choice come to you like later when you were a teenager or an adult, like when did you think about, um, going into nursing?
1: This idea, I think it honestly, it started when I was really young. I didn't know that it would be nursing. That would be the, the, the choice that I would make later on. But I knew that I always wanted to understand how the body functions and how to care of it Little you know, like I wanted when I was younger that I just you know wanted to save and take care of people and I was also terrified and that I think that grew from being terrified of or just having an understanding of my own mortality and then when I got to college I thought you know I really like biology I really like um Uh, anatomy and physiology. And I thought at first, okay, I want to maybe pursue a career in the medical field. So I started volunteering at uh, at New York Presbyterian's, uh, Wild Cornell's emergency department. And I realized that the care that I wanted to give was exactly what the nurses were doing. And that's what made me, and that was probably the second year of college or the third and that's when I was like, oh, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pursue nursing, and that was how, that's how I knew. It was just going there, volunteering four hours, um, once a week, just basically giving pillows or you know giving water to patients if they needed it, but observing. The idea was that you volunteer to see exactly what's going on and how things are how things are functioning in in that kind of environment. And I, I was just I. I thought, wow, this nursing is exactly where I want to be.
0: So, if I if I if I understand you were at Pace University at this time?
1: No, I was I only I went to Pace University for 1 year and then I left to go to Hunter because I couldn't afford Pace and Pace was uh, Pace is primarily um, a business school and it was my only way out of Florida. It was a school that accepted me, so I was like, I'm out. And after 1 year, <laughs> I learned about hunter i think through maybe friends or uh, my stepmother at the time and and how it's cheaper and it's a good you know it's a good college it's a good you know city university and i applied and and it's obviously way cheaper than pace and i was at hunter at the time and pursuing like you know getting uh my pre-med courses in and when i spoke to my counselor my counselor was the one that said you know it looks really good on your med school application, if you volunteer at a hospital, and when I did so, that's when I realized, and that was at Hunter, and then that's when I applied to nursing schools, and then I ended up going to nursing school at NYU.
0: So you made a choice at a certain point that you were going to choose the path of nursing school versus med school.
1: You know, thankfully, I didn't grow up as a sickly kid, so I, I wasn't in and out of hospitals, or my mom wasn't sick, thankfully. And um, I didn't have really any family members that were in the hospital all the time. So I didn't really understand the environment and the role that really doctors play and nurses play. I guess my understanding of what a doctor does was very different than what I saw. And I wanted more hands-on work. And I felt that looking at the nurses doing basically all the grunt work, all the things necessary to do what needs to be done to take care of somebody I felt like that the nurses did most of that and I wanted to I and that's what appealed to me I know that I mean not to diminish what physicians do at all it was more along the lines of um I wanted to do the the tasks I wanted to do the work to get to where we needed to go for this person as opposed to just like you know making other decisions and not being as hands-on. I guess I thought physicians were more hands-on than they actually were. Um, so that's what I, that's what appealed to me. So I thought, okay, nursing is, is it.
0: <laughs> I think a lot of people go into medical school thinking that they're going to have a more hands-on like role with patients, and then they find out that that's not what it's going to be like to be a physician at all most of the time right I think that's probably disappointing to some people
1: absolutely you know maybe it was you know years and years ago but as of right now I feel like uh, a lot of the physicians their eyes and ears are the nurses so you know working in the ICU you have um, one or two physicians managing 20 patients and it's very difficult to completely understand every little thing that's happening with each person. so that's all from the nurses. Everything that the doctor knows about like any changes it's it's because the nurse is informing um, the physician like look this there's a change here there's you know there's a change there assessment is everything and it's impossible for and the way that's the way the system is set up is impossible for a physician to be in every you know at the bedside for every single patient um, all the time. And so the nurses are the ones that are doing that work and then going to the physician saying, I need this, or this is happening to the patient, what are we gonna do? And that's how we would collaborate. And I feel, I feel like nursing, to me that's such an amazing part of nursing. And I, I like that as opposed to just not being there and seeing the changes and and, and making those decisions,
0: yeah. I mean, it's clearly something that stood out to you very immediately at the beginning, and you just knew that that's what you wanted to do, or that's the part of it that was meaningful, right? Yeah, exactly. So, what was, can you talk about like what the progression of your career was, like from Hunter to NYU to your first jobs?
1: So, I, you know, I volunteered in the hospital, and that's what made me decide to go into nursing. So, I started to do pre-nursing um, classes at Hunter. Uh, the desire to go into their nursing program was—I uh, mean, their nursing program is so popular that you know you have over 300 students applying for a 90-seat position, 90-seat uh, you know um, opening into the program. And so, uh, when I applied to Hunter, I ended up getting on their waiting list. The way they admit patient i mean, sorry—the way they they admit um, students is just basically they look at your GPA and your NLN score. This was at the time, and I had a great GPA and my NLN, NLN, the National League of Nursing exam—that's what that is. Um, I did well on that, but they usually just take the top ten percent of the students, like, and they average out, and that's how they get admitted. Whereas other nursing schools, um, you have to write, you know. A letter. You have to. They look at other things that um, you know in order to accept you into the school. So I end up applying to NYU and I applied to Long Island University. I didn't want to spend the money to do so, and so NYU accepted pretty much all the classes that I already took at Hunter, and they accepted me. But I just had to take one silly class, which was fine. But that's how I got into. NYU, I could have waited, and I thought about this because it could have saved me so much money. I could have just waited another semester, studied for the NLN more, and tried to get a better score, but I was very desperate to finish nursing school, and so I, when I got accepted at NYU, I was like, I'm going.
0: I think that <laughs> was very, a good choice. Uh,
1: no regrets.
0: <laughs> no regrets. I mean, you went to a great school. You got your nursing degree without waiting and waiting and waiting, so what was your first job
1: so my first job it was actually very difficult to find a job after nursing school and I was just talking about this with a coworker of mine um, yesterday at work how it took her over a year and she I graduated in 2009 she graduated in 2010 and it took her over a year to find a a job even though she did an externship at New York Presbyterian as a matter of fact where she where we currently work now I it took me about six months to find a job, and the only reason why I got my first job at Beth Israel Medical Center, I worked in the cardiac telemetry unit, was because one of my classmates, my a friend of mine, she did an externship at this unit, and they 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 offered her the job, but she ended up getting accepted into um, another hospital, another unit, but she referred me. She said, "Listen, like I." can't take this job i am very grateful however i know someone who would be great and that's how i got that job and so that took me six months and that was because i got so lucky so that's where i started and then i ended up staying there for about three years before i moved to new york presbyterian
0: so you feel like you've progressed in your career you feel like you've moved up to better positions or how do you feel about it
1: well i feel as though um and there's like a whole, there's a huge debate uh, about this. But you know, a lot of nurses say that it's good to work on a, you know, med medical surgical med surge, as we call it, medical surgical unit before moving on to uh, specialized areas of nursing because it really grounds you and it's a lot of hard work. And some other, you know, some other people saying, oh, you know, if you know you're gonna want to be in the ICU, if you want to be in the emergency department, you know, you don't need this med surge experience but I wouldn't say that I necessarily upgraded from med I would say that med gave me a really good foundation um, and introduction into what nursing is like and what it's like to really just work hard. I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for med nurses, especially those who stay there for a long time because they are definitely just overworked, I feel. But I wouldn't say I upgraded. It's more like I always knew that I wanted to do critical care and work in the emergency department. And so when I got my three years of experience, and I was always told that before you go to another unit or you know to another job, you should at least have a year or two under your belt. So when I waited, um, then that's when you know once two years has passed, I was look you know I started looking at other job openings in the emergency department. And when I applied, they that same week they called me, and and then that was it. But I feel as though I got to a place that I wanted to be and I'm really lucky and very happy about it so that was the emergency department and I ended up staying there for five years and then I wanted to (laughs) I thought about going back to school to get my masters in and be a nurse practitioner but I never worked in the clinic I never did outpatient so I didn't want to I didn't want to just go and apply to school get a degree and then have a job that I may not like at all so I decided I left the, the emergency department after five years and I worked as an outpatient nurse for one year just to see, and I actually, I was a, I was, I, I was a float nurse, meaning that I floated between different um, Medicaid and Medicare clinics at, at New York Presbyterian. And I just got to observe to see how that kind of world runs and whether or not that's something for me. And I didn't feel as though that was something I wanted to do. So after a year, I looked at other positions and I've always been inter- interested in, in intensive care, but it's very difficult to get a position because a lot of people who go into intensive care stay there. And also I didn't really want to work night shift again. I worked night shift for six years and I, I just didn't want to do it. And so I got super lucky again. I'm a very lucky person. Uh, they had a, a A day shift position open for a surgical intensive care unit and I applied and that's where I'm at now and it's such a great experience because it's different it's very different than the emergency department it's different than the medical surgical uh, cardiac telemetry floor that I worked at and I'm learning so much so it's for me it's an upgrade in that sense for me it's an upgrade in like my that it feeds my need to learn something new something more so
0: so this this desire to like learn new things and experience different things is important to you right
1: yeah very important uh you know after five years in the er or three years in in the telemetry unit you feel like okay i saw a lot you know and now i want to see something more and that's what i got you know and that's the beauty of nursing the fact that you can just go into a different area and learn something completely new is pretty fantastic, as opposed to just staying in one spot for a long time. I can't even imagine that.
0: I want to ask another question, but before we get to that, I wanted to ask about the outpatient difference. Like, you you were a little ambivalent about being a nurse practitioner and doing outpatient work. You You did spend mm-hmm. that time, like, floating between, like, these Medicare, Medicaid kind of settings what was the what was that like what was that how was that different from your other work
1: well I felt as though well, you know mostly what my role there I felt like it was more just I was just drawing blood um, it was actually pretty disappointing I was drawing blood and and doing vitals which is something that um, you don't necessarily need a nurse to do right you can get a phlebotomist you can get a and I thought going into there that I would do more education and i would be able to talk to patients and just you know go over whatever you know anything from lifestyle changes to medication administration just doing more of the education part however i should say that two clinics that i worked at out of the five that i did did something along those lines like i worked in a geriatric clinic and the nurses there um definitely did more troubleshooting and and did more um, patient education but for me, it wasn't enough to just stay in outpatient. But my whole point of going to outpatient was to see what the advanced practitioners were doing. What were the nurse practitioners doing? What were the physicians doing? And I would say that the geriatric outpatient clinic, it's called the Wright Center, I believe. I think it's still called the Wright Center. It's fantastic. The nurse practitioners there actually do house calls, which I thought was pretty amazing. But you know, not every clinic does this. And so I I just felt like they were just, you know, the the nurse practitioners and other clinics were just seeing patients very quickly and just getting things done. And I I don't know, I, I wanted something that was a little more education centered. And maybe they do a lot of education, but I felt like they weren't really respected, and sometimes it's a lot. Uh, for these clinics, there'll be just one nurse practitioner and then a ton of other, you know, physicians. And there's this weird rift between the two. I don't really know how to truly describe it, but i felt like the nurse practitioner was working alone a lot, and I didn't really like that kind of dynamic. And I couldn't see myself being in a clinic like that. And I, I'm not trying to say that every clinic is like this. I know that in New York, and I mean, I know that other states utilize nurse practitioners more than New York does but I didn't I don't know it just wasn't for me but definitely as a registered nurse just working in these clinics they definitely didn't use us to use me to my full potential I felt like I can I could just do more along the lines of education and we weren't really used at all for that so that's why after a year I was like all right I got what I needed I gotta go
0: it sounds like you felt like a cog in a machine a little bit like you weren't really right so like when you say like i learned more in these other positions like this this aspect of it that's about like learning what what is it you're learning when you are in a very different um setting or doing a very different job like you're learning a lot i'm sure but like what what's what is it you're learning
1: i'm learning a lot about you know I'm fine-tuning basically my assessment skills, critical care in the ICU is just completely different than it is in the emergency department, whereas, you know, in the emergency department, patients come in and you're trying to figure out what's going on with them and, you know, based off of these clues, all these symptoms that they tell you and your assessment, and then, you know, you figure out, okay, this is what's going on, and usually when they're sicker and they go to other units, you don't get to see how they're maintained and how, how they get better. I working in the ICU, I'm learning a lot about anatomy and physiology. I'm learning a lot about you know pharmacology, just by the patient population and and how they present and what we use to keep them alive. I find that really interesting and I've been learning a lot. It just gets deeper into critical care, pretty much everything that I'm learning. and I find that very interesting.
0: what What does critical care mean?
1: Critical care—it's—it's it's when somebody is pretty much incredibly sick. They're critical, right? They—they're very sick, and they require a lot of interventions to keep them alive. They're—they're—they need—they um, need to be checked more often. They need to be—they need to have you know all these medications on board in order to have them stay alive.
0: what would you say your relationships with patients have been like over the years? Have they changed? Are they different in different contexts? How, how would you say, I mean, your, your relationship or connection with them has varied?
1: Um, I would say that, I mean, it definitely changes depending on where I'm working. You know, um, when I was in the med surge floor, my relationship was, there's a lot of education there and, and, and helping patients manage their own care because, you know, even though they're sick, they're not critical. So, you know, a lot of it's like understanding why they're taking certain medications and best practices on whatever issues that are going on in their lives. And in the ICU, um, the relationship is different because a lot of these patients are very sick. So, a lot of them are intubated, some of them, you know, are chemically sedated. and. or paralyzed so the education the relationship is different because you end up developing more relationship with their family than you do with them and so they get better and then you know you take care of them in a different way but I feel like in the ICU there's more it's more with the family than it is with the patients depending on how critical they are so uh, with the family it's more just more education you know you tell them you know a lot of these people um have you know when their family members come in they're not they don't know the terminology they don't understand what's happening and if these patients stay in our unit for a long time they end up developing this knowledge and they count on you to explain and to help them understand what's happening and why it's happening and what can be done next and so it's uh you include them in understanding what's going on with their family members because it's so complicated
0: so it's not just the relationship with the patient but the relationship with their family or friends or i guess right
1: even in a med surge setting uh you have a relationship with the with the family as well it's just in a different context right because the patient is not critically ill um particularly for patients who need at-home care like you know who are very sick and or and or they have it's a sort of cognitive issue, like if somebody has, uh, you know, they have so the family member is pretty much their primary caregiver, and so you develop this um, relationship where they're counting on you to help them understand what's happening with their loved one, in addition to how can they maintain their loved one and, and keep them from getting sick again, and how to you know recognize you know red flags and, and when to seek
0: help have those relationships been difficult like with the families like talking to them about oh,
1: yeah I yeah. Mean, yeah it's a range you know it, it could be difficult in the sense that some patients some family members or patients don't process information easily whether it's very critical information or whether it's just not so critical information and then there's some family members who just very difficult to work with in general because I feel that in hospitals there's this idea that they I think people who are not familiar with the way hospitals work they come in thinking that it's a certain way and so when they realize it's not they can get very upset so you have to deal with a range of different people and how they respond to a crisis and what's happening and also understand that it's not always about You. Some people are just like, it's such a terrible situation. They're upset and they don't know how to process. So you end up kind of being their punching bag in a sense. And you have to understand and kind of step back and say, okay, this is, they're going through something. And even though I, even though I, I don't deserve the kind of treatment I'm getting, I understand the place it's coming from, but also I'm going to stand my ground and, 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 and not, you know, be spoken to in some other, you know, in that way.
0: I'll how that how do you, how do you find that calm within yourself to like stand your ground, but also absorb, you know, these attacks from people who are uh, very very angry or very very scared or sad or like they're they're throwing everything at you they've got because their like loved one is in danger, so they're just like. <clears throat> but you have, you have, how do yeah. you find that within yourself to just be like okay this is how things work this is what we're going to do like how do you do that
1: i think it takes time i think it takes practice you know and experience to try to take yourself outside of the situation and try not to get i guess how would you say like try not to get so upset yourself or you know I don't know how to i don't know the. i can't really think of the right word but like it's take, more take it
0: personally or personalize
1: you just it to, you just yeah not taking it personally and and just realizing that you know they're in a very typical situation it's easier said than done and some patients and some or and or some family members like attack you personally and that's when it gets really hard and and you just have to realize that they're in a really terrible situation at least for me i'm always Thinking, and telling myself like they're in a terrible situation. They're taking it out on you. You're doing the best you can, and you know I tell myself, and I always, and I also tell orientees uh, that no matter what happens in the day, you are the one that has to deal with what you've, how you performed, and how you, and what you've done when you get home. You have to sleep at night, so you know do what you feel is right. So that no matter what happens, you know that you did everything that you can do in the correct way and not go home and think like, oh, God, like I should have done this this differently. Or, you know, you don't want to have that moment where you felt like you could have done something differently and have trouble sleeping.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, Tanya, um, I think I would not be going out on a limb to say that, um, the Corona pandemic has been, um, probably the biggest challenge of your career. I mean, is that fair to say?
1: Very fair to say. Sorry about that. Um, my mom, keeps calling me. Uh, yes, that's very fair to say. Definitely the biggest challenge of my career.
0: So when I, I I recall back in even January, I think we first heard about it, but in February kind of heard a little bit more in the beginning of March, it was becoming clear that this was serious. When did you realize this was really serious? Like when, when was, was there a particular moment when you were like, oh God, this is going to be very serious.
1: When we started getting patients in our unit with COVID. So, you know, you hear about it and you see what's going on, going on in Wuhan and you think that, you know, like anybody, you're like, it's not going to come here. That's such a crazy, it, it's, it's, it was such a large scale then, but the, the thought of it potentially becoming what it did was not something that I think anyone, especially myself, uh, could ever, like, realize or understand so when we started when we started getting patients and patients were and people being identified in new york and the first countdown i don't know if you remember that but when cuomo was like all right we found two like the first few people tested positive and they're now in the hospital and and so when we realized that when i realized that it was in new york and then i started seeing um I think it was just two patients on our unit at the time. Um, I thought, fuck, and it's it's serious because we didn't know much about the virus at the time and so we were just doing what we can and following what the C D C was saying at the at the time and 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 we were all just that's pretty much that's when I realized that this is gonna be quite big. But the Big moment, I guess you can say. When I thought that this is this is this is going to be out of control was when they had to float me. So when I, I came to work and uh, and they wanted to float one of our nurses to the CCU, which is the cardiac care unit, and I didn't know at the time that the CCU was a hundred percent COVID, and so our unit being the surgical ICU. We try to, as they say, stay clean because we have surgical patients and we don't want them to get COVID. But when they floated me to the to the CCU and it was 100% COVID, when I first got there, the first thing that happened was they gave me a new admission, um, and from another unit, somebody who went to respiratory distress and and I saw how the whole unit was COVID and how everything was set up and how chaotic and insane it was. I was like, Oh my God, this is going to be how it is. And literally that same day, um, my unit became hundred percent COVID. They ended up moving out all the surgical patients to, um, another unit. And they started immediately emitting all these, um, patients on ventilators and all these COVID patients. So that was when I was like, Oh man, this is it. This is how it is. It's, it's where the hospital's turning 100% COVID, turning into mostly COVID, I see it,
0: though. If you you can remember um, that first moment of seeing COVID patients and realizing something was wrong, and that second moment of realizing, like, oh, this is extremely bad, do you have any sense of, like, the timeline of that? Was it, like, March, er, early March, or was late, um, late February? I don't know.
1: It's hard for me to remember exactly the timeline. I want to say that we first got patients uh, in our unit in February. But when we went completely full COVID, I believe it was in March. I'm trying to remember. Um, actually, recently wanted to find out exactly the timeline of all that. But um, I would say a matter of like a week or two.
0: So it could be like the last week of February. The
1: first few people. Right. Right. Pro- sometime between basically the end of February and um, March, like right before the lockdown, I want to say. Right before the New York City lockdown, I should say. So
0: it was that rapid. I wish I can,
1: you know, I'll try to get dates. Yeah.
0: Like yeah. this it this p- like pivot between like we don't have any COVID patients to now we have a ton was like within two weeks.
1: For sure. And it's not just that we got, you know, we had patients, we had uh, patients transferred from other hospitals because they started getting, um, I don't know how much details I can really say about that. But I know that, you know, it wasn't just within our hospitals, it was also within our like sister hospitals that we were getting patients um, who were on ventilators and they needed more room and uh, they were sent to ICUs in the campus that I was at. So it, everything happened very quickly it escalated very quickly.
0: Yeah. I was, that's the thing. One of the things I was not very clear on is like what we were perceiving in North Carolina or Georgia was, you know, pretty remote from what was happening in New York. So I wasn't sure if it was like a sort of subtle, you know, like, Oh, we got a few cases, a few cases here and there. And then bam, or if it was just like, like this immediate pivot over of like, Oh, we've got three cases. Now we've got a hundred or something like um, within that narrow window of time. And it, it sounds like the beginning of March kind of was like that. Like it was this very rapid.
1: Right. I'll get specific dates, but I know that definitely was within a few weeks in March that it just went from like a few to, Oh my goodness. So many people are here. So many people are getting intubated and we need the space
0: what was that like for you and your coworkers in that moment when you all realized that like this was happening and it was so rapid and serious? Like I know you you know how you felt about it, but I know you also have a sense of how other people you worked with felt about it. So like what was the psychological situation and the, the very beginning part of like, Oh shit. Like this is bad. It
1: was, it was terrifying because what what made it, even more terrifying was when, cause I, I really want to get these timelines in because right before, um, even when we first had the few patients who were COVID on the unit, uh, we didn't have, there wasn't a mask mandate. You know, you weren't, you didn't have to wear a mask unless you were sick. That was the, that, that was what was said for a long time, you know, don't wear a mask unless you're sick. So, um, during that period, when we got the few COVID patients, and then we got everyone else. Um, well, I, I should say, like in the beginning, when we had the few COVID patients, that's when we started getting other coworkers who were sick, who got sick, and so. And then, when coworkers got sick, and then whoever was with them or working next to them had to go on quarantine. You realized that you went from a unit that you know had. I don't know, I'm just throwing out a number here. For example, I don't know exactly how many um, nurses work on my unit specifically, but, you know, you let's say we have 20 nurses in total. Um, we, you go down from 20 to, like, eight nurses. And so you realize that you have no staff because some of them are out sick and some of them are out being quarantined. And you have a whole unit full of COVID ICU patients that are incredibly sick and you realize you have zero staff um, it was terrifying and then a lot of the co-workers that I had who were sick you know um, it was for me it was completely scary because you don't know how sick these people that you work with will get and these people are you know I work with a lot of young um, nurses and they were out and they were and it hit them really hard and and you just keep thinking when am I next and what if they end up on a, on a ventilator? What if they die? You know, you, it's, it's completely horrifying. Um, so I think for everyone, everyone was just really scared. And it, it's one of those things where you feel like everything is just so surreal. Like, is this really happening? Like, is this for real? Is this real life? Um, huh. And I mean, it got so bad that you couldn't possibly put everybody in quarantine because then you will have no staff, you will have no one. And so um, I remember at one point, um, they said that if you are sick with COVID, if you didn't have symptoms for like, if you go three days without symptoms, then you were welcome back. This was very early on, you know, the, the rules are definitely changed now, but at the time it's just, we had zero staff and they were like, what, what are we gonna do? What exactly are we gonna do um, when half the unit is sick and the other half is, you know, Needing to be quarantined because they were around these sick patients and sick um, co workers. So it was terrifying, very terrifying. I think everyone was afraid. No one knew what was really happening and, and why it was happening. And
0: when you, when you go from 20 to 8, that means that people's workload is doubled, at least, maybe tripled in this bad, situ- like unusually bad situation, I guess. Right. Um, and that right. on top of the fear, there's also just the amount of overwork and just, um, your sense of responsibility for people that you just can't like, there's just not enough of yeah, you to go been, around.
1: Up, right. So what, what they ended up doing, and I can send you this article, there it was like, there was a, a, a paper uh, published um, about this. So they took a few of our coworkers who are very senior ICU nurses who have been working in the ICU for like, I mean, like so many years, they took them and had them train step-down nurses. So step-down is kind of like the middle ground between a regular medical surgical floor and an ICU. And so pretty much you're not sick enough to be in the ICU, but you're too sick to be on a regular floor. So you get close monitoring, but not as close as the ICU, but you get closer monitoring than if you were on a regular medical surgical floor. So these nurses were pulled to get trained. I think it was only a week, a week of training in a classroom, um, by senior ICU staff, uh, senior ICU nurses, and they were put into Orient on the floor, um, for three days I think so that pretty much they can help ICU nurses and, work with us because there just wasn't enough of us to go around. So when the surge happened, there was just not enough ICU space. So a lot of the units, like a lot of the um, step-down units, the operating room, the PACU, the post-anesthesia care unit, they all became ICUs. And so the idea in the beginning and everything changed by the day, was to send like one ICU nurse to these makeshift units, these makeshift, makeshift ICU units, and it would be one nurse, one ICU nurse, and one step-down nurse for like four patients, three to four patients. And the idea was that this step-down nurse will help you while you do a lot of the ICU stuff. And yeah, so it because we didn't have enough staff and because of everything was happening all so fast and all at once, they tried to create a program to teach step-down nurses, they orient them for one week in critical care, and then threw them on the floor to work for three days, and then that was it. All right, now, you know, you're put in these situations, and they actually published a paper, I'll send it to you, about how that went. You know, we needed critical care nurses, and there's only so many that can go around, and a lot of them were out sick, and uh, you got to train nurses. It's all about, you know, educating them and seeing... How we can utilize nurses that don't have critical care experience to help out in this situation, and it was terrifying because there were there were many times when you know step down nurses, PACU nurses couldn't get the help, and they were put in these situations where they don't know how to manage patients on the vent- ventilator, and it's out of their scope of practice, and it's horrifying. Um, and what made it more horrifying is that you know a lot of these patients, all so many of them were on ventilators that there weren't enough ventilators, so they end up put it, getting put on what we call transport ventilators, which is what EMS uses to transport a patient who's on a vent. And these, these transport ventilators are not equipped to do complicated, um, uh, settings pretty much. I don't, I don't,
0: I, I don't know how much you want to talk about all this because I mean, this is obviously very raw emotional stuff like that you've just been through not that long ago, but what was it like going to and from work? in this time when New York was under lockdown, when, like, when things were the most, like, most like a ghost town, like, what was it like getting from your apartment to your work, um, where you were working, I'm guessing, 12 hours a day?
1: Yeah, 12 12 to 13. Uh, So it was, well, the city was quiet. I've never... Experience that it wasn't, you know, you don't even see that on a weekend. Um, so I was too afraid at the time, I was too afraid to take the subway to go to work. So I ended up registering for a city bike. And so I took the bike, which I'm very lucky to live very, pretty close to work, you know. Um, so on the bike, it took me about 20 minutes and it was just a ghost town. Nobody was out. And this was in March. So it was cold and, it was, it was like out of a movie. I don't even know how to explain it. But coming home was always the hardest because all that uncertainty, you know, and trying to grasp the, the gravity of what was happening. And then after you leave work, like that 20-minute bike ride to go home was the best because that was the best time to cry <laughs> um, because it's hard to, you know, even if I came home and explained all this to Alex, to my husband Alex, uh, it's hard to really verbalize and dump all this really hard stuff on somebody when they themselves are trying to figure out how to deal with it. You know, a good cry on a bike ride home is fantastic. Um, (laughs) But, and in the shower. So the ride was, it was weird. It It was like a ghost town. And riding home was always the most difficult part of it, the whole
0: thing. After working a thirteen-hour shift and going out of your PPE and all this and in and out, like you must have been exhausted emotionally and physically, right?
1: Um, Absolutely, you know. And and you, what I ended up doing is I ended up developing a very uh, rigid routine because you know you don't know how much of the COVID is on you and what you're bringing home, and and so you know once you give report and. And you're ready to leave there's the doffing process and you know I, I i ended up doing what i felt was necessary to feel like i'm not bringing it home and and so one thing that i ended up doing was you know in my apartment there's a hallway right when you open the door and right in the beginning like right when you open the door there's a laundry basket there and we made it kind of like the the dirty zone i guess and the minute i walk in everything gets taken off and put into this laundry basket and then jump right into the shower and just, you know, take the, the craziest shower of your life, <laughs> everything um, just assume COVID is all over you. And then, yeah, so it's, it's a process, but you do what you feel like you have to do to feel like you're doing something safe for yourself, even though maybe what I was doing was too much. And But then again, we didn't know much about, this virus the way we do now and my doffing process is not nearly as rigid as it was in the beginning and you know it's it's exhausting i mean i feel like that's not even that word can't even like describe fully how
0: how bad it was (laughs) exhausting cannot describe cannot contain what you're talking about right it's a it's a 14 or 15 hour day really once you factor in all the yeah. like commuting and on un- clothing and PP and cleaning and, um, and the emotional like weight of it. I'm just wondering like in a big picture, like, I mean, really like you've had to deal with this in a way that most of us haven't like, I mean, most of us who don't work in the healthcare field, uh, all of us have had to deal with the sort of tragedy and like, you know, stress of what this pandemic is. But like, how 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 do you deal with, like how have you processed or oh, managed?
1: I was gonna say that um before I get to how I manage um I wanted to mention again about the ride going to work in the beginning. Um, one of the things that happened that bothered well one, a few things that uh, anyway sorry um, stumbling on my words. But when I would go to work and it was the lockdown, the only people that I saw were um people walking their dogs and at the time new york city didn't mandate putting on a
0: mask
1: you know and so i oh you know i wore my surgical mask to go to work to ride my bike and a few times i caught people taking pictures of me and in in the beginning it would infuriate me because you know you deal with such a serious thing that's actually happening and then people who don't fully understand that are also trying to process it but they see you and they see this real this thing, you know, they see you wearing a mask and at the time that's such an uncommon thing to do in in, in you know in New York in the United States. And so I've caught people taking pictures of me and maybe I'm paranoid but I I would just didn't understand like I, I, I don't know how to process that, but it was more like I felt like, this is not for show, you know. <laughs> I'm wearing this because I'm about to go into a like a battle zone. And I'm getting photos taken of me because, whoa, there's somebody with a mask on and like we're in a lockdown and it it bothered me so much. Um, And obviously now everybody's, for the most part, at least in New York, are wearing masks and it's such a common thing now. But at the time when I first was wearing one, it was, it took many people by surprise and you get these weird looks and even some pictures taken of you. So that was very frustrating in the beginning when I would go to work, particularly in my neighborhood. But um, to get back to what you were asking me about how I process, I realized that I had a, I guess, I guess if I learned anything about this pandemic, it's that patience is a big deal, being patient and, and 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 dealing with things literally one day at a time. And people say that, but I feel like I, and I've said that, but I never fully understood it until this happened. so I keep telling myself, today I'm alive. I'm okay my husband's okay my mom's okay what am I going to do today because I may not be around tomorrow Like I, you, 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 you think about that all the time because when you see all these people dying around you and you see all these people getting sick you keep thinking like when am I next so I'm forced to do nothing but think about what I can do now that I'm okay so I just try to do things that make me happy um, so I would like you know try to work out or you know usually I like reading but I couldn't read in the beginning I was just like I can't I, it's so hard to focus on anything but in the beginning it was more like I had to make a conscious effort to live in the present and decide what to do with it because that's what I have right now right. and so that's how I learned to like kind of manage it I don't know if that makes sense
0: it totally makes sense I mean I got it totally makes sense in terms of, like, the practical management in the moment. Um, but I think in the long term, there's going to be these questions about, like, how how we all sort of, how we live with it and we, how we grow with it, because this is just part of our lives now, like, what, what we've seen and experienced, and especially what you've seen and experienced. Like, there's the immediate, like, tactical kind of, like, I have to get through the next 12 hours or... 36 hours or whatever but like there's gonna i don't know there's gonna be a lot of reckoning i think with how we've just this extremely sad awful thing that we've all been through and it's been so difficult where are we now in in new york in december in 2020 when it seems like things are getting worse like maybe worse than they've ever been what, what is it like now uh so
1: well, in the hospital, we're starting to see the numbers climb. Obviously, and we're starting to see more and more sick people. So I'm unfortunately, I'm, I'm assuming that it's just going to get as bad as the first, if not worse, probably with the amount of people. But I feel like outside of the hospital, it's very different. Um, you know, we're not in a lockdown. I wish we were, honestly. I wish we were in a lockdown. Um, in the hospitals, um, in the begin in the beginning, the lock of the lockdown, no visitors were allowed to come in, and that doesn't hold true anymore. And even though the numbers are climbing, and we're actually seeing some infection uh, in- infection rates happening because of visitors, we're still not not doing a visitation lockdown, which is very very unfortunate, I should say. Um, so. Whereas before when this was all happening, it felt like everyone was taking it a little more seriously and like staying at home and like just seeing how, you know, how staying at home would help with the numbers because, you know, for obvious reasons, as we know, but now that we're having another surge, I feel like we're not really learning from the first surge, I guess you can say. And people are still doing, and it's harder because right now we have the holidays. And so it's really difficult for people to understand the gravity of the situation and to understand that, you know, making these sacrifices, like not seeing your family members and not getting together in groups um, can help in the long run. So I think that in 2020 New York, I think that it's just going to be bad or just as worse, if not, I'm sorry, just as bad if not worse than the first because now we're dealing with it during this time you know. whereas before it was March and there's not a holiday coming up people are not, you know, people were taking it seriously because, you know, this was a new thing and it was all happening in New York only and everybody was just kind of like, oh my god and now it, it just feels as though like people are still trying to live life like it was before without consequence and so you see a lot of people getting sick because of it I don't know if that if I'm being
0: clear no absolutely absolutely i mean i guess the thing that i'm wondering about is the fact that the total number of cases seems to be vastly larger than it was at the supposed like worst part of the pandemic and like maybe april or may or june um i don't know if it's to i don't know if that's exactly right in new york because you guys experienced a different timetable but in the other parts of the country are getting it worse now but Yeah, I don't know. I I think that there's a certain degree to which people's patience just ran out and they're just like, I'm not going to isolate anymore. Like, look, I did, I did the isolating. Like now I'm going to go back to life. And it's like, now we're going back to life at exactly the time that it's the worst. We're, we're, we're having this conversation on December 8th, 2020. So this is in a moment when things are peaking, right? Like across the board, I would think. Right. I, I would you say it's gonna get worse a
1: hundred percent yeah no it really is especially um, I just watched this news clip um, from Nevada um, where they opened up a field hospital and that's how it was in New York you know they we opened yeah. up areas um, I think Mount Sinai opened up an area right in Central Park to deal with the the amounts of, of people who needed help and you're seeing that everywhere and it's only going to get worse because of these holidays because you know people are going to get together and that's you know and it's and i i understand the difficulty i understand the covid fatigue i get it however it's i guess it's harder to grasp when you're not dealing with it you know it's harder to grasp when you don't have a family member yet who has gotten it and who has fallen really ill or died and i think it's going to be a rude awakening for many people who feel that this is, you know, enough is enough. I'm going to do what I want to do, and then realize that wow, there's consequences to your actions. And you know, we've been living in this for nine months, and it almost feels like a slap in the face. Really, you know, it's not like the beginning when we didn't really know what was happening, but we're now nine months in, and you know, way, you know, there's the internet, there's news, like we know so much more information than we did, but then people are still choosing to risk, you know, their life and other people's lives and it's very frustrating so it is going to get worse I feel like I said you know I just one day at a time tomorrow may be worse and I'm just going to have to deal with whatever comes in and then <laughs> hope for the best I know that sounds a little cheesy but that's I, I can't do anything else I can't think about the future I can't think about how it's going to look I just have to deal with how it looks right now
0: it doesn't sound cheesy at all it sounds like exactly what somebody doing the right thing has to keep in mind to get through a very difficult time because you're doing the right thing you're doing all the right things you're doing the best things um you're not only just wearing a mask and being a good person like some of us are you're saving people's lives and risking your life to do it so like taking one day at a time and hoping for the best is pretty good i would say yeah Everybody who knows you has a great deal of respect and admiration. So, I I don't know if I could do what you're doing, and I really admire it. Um, I really admire your tenacity and just commitment and just courage to do it. So, we're going through. We're probably going to be going through a pretty difficult time. Even more difficult, I think probably. But I'm glad that you're out there doing it.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I I feel like now, what I've been question not questioning I sh- I shouldn't say that now. The next step is this vaccine, and we I literally just got an email from my job about two days ago that they have a shipment and they're going to start offering it in the middle of December, which is probably in like two weeks, a week or two. Yeah. And that we're not we're not mandated to get it, but they are highly encouraging people to get it. And so I've been doing some research today. I think we have the Pfizer one. I've been doing some research on what to expect because I I will get vaccinated. How soon I will, I don't know. And so, you know, thankfully, I've lasted this long without getting it. And so I feel like I can wait, I guess, and see. And I guess what's keeping me from just going, being the first in line is that The side effects of the vaccine, which I've read so far, like fatigue and headache and and fever. And with the numbers going up and the need for 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 us to be present at work and the fact that already now, you know, I have coworkers who are out sick, you know, who got infected. I don't want to have to not be at work because. Like, I don't want to not be 100%, if that makes any sense, because this vaccine and what I've read so far, and, you know, like I said, things could change, and I'm just learning about it, but after... And they're in two doses, so the first dose is fine. and usually feel okay, but then the second dose, sometimes, like, the first, like, day is, like, really rough. At least that's what I've read. It doesn't mean that I'm discouraging people from getting it. I think it's incredibly important. I think people need to get vaccinated for us to move forward with this. I just... I. I mean, part of me is afraid. Another Part of me is like, I want to get this done. Let's just, let's just do it. Because I, I can't keep living like this. And the thought of seeing this every year forever seems so terrifying.
0: It totally makes sense what you're saying. I mean, you're saying if this vaccine takes you off of the field, then like, that's not good. Like you want to be able to, keep doing your job and helping people. If the the vaccine interrupts that, then that's bad, right? I mean, that's what you're saying, I think.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I know that a lot of people have a lot of doubts and whatnot, but I do believe that, you know, I know that this was rushed because it had to be rushed, and I know some people, you know, you have that group of people that's like, it's all bullshit, but I believe in science, and there's no... What is the benefit of putting out a vaccine that's just going to harm a bunch of people? You know what I mean? What's the... (laughs) What's it like why so I want to believe that this will be helpful and it can do us some good and I know they're offering it to us first and so I just need to make this decision whether when I'm going to do it pretty much because I can't see myself ever going to see my mother who lives in Florida and my little sister without some sort of protection and also I don't I don't want to get COVID, you know, like I, 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 I would like to not get COVID ever. And if I can have a vaccine that's going to prevent me from getting COVID, I'm going to take it just like I take the flu vaccine every year. And like, you know, I want to do what's right and I want to do it safely. So we'll see how this month turns out and how it looks once to start rolling it out.
0: If the, if the downside is that you feel fatigued or whatever for a couple of days, that's, not that big of a downside to protecting yourself against it. So I don't, I don't know what the side effects will be, but it does sound like cost benefit analysis would be that it's probably better for you to have it. I don't know. I mean, I don't know.
1: Exactly. That's what that I agree with you. A hundred percent. I think that there's just that fear surrounding the fact that it's been made so fast and you know, there's only so many people they can test the vaccine on and, 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 as much as you want the process of making the vaccine to go its complete course the way like other vaccines are made, but this is like a very unprecedented time, you know, like this is not like anything that has happened really. And so you do what you have to do. And if these vaccines were made and and if they're going to help in this situation, I'm all for it. I just got to decide when I'm going to do it. It's so easy to be, um, you know, it, not so easy. I guess you can say there's so many people who have doubts and it's hard to not listen to other people's doubts and think like, oh, God, what if they're right? Or at the same time, I want this shit over with.
0: <laughs> I have to say, when I saw the, the story, the news article and the photos of that 90 year old woman, uh, Margaret. In Britain, who got the first coronavirus vaccine, I felt very emotional, um, and very tearful in a way that yeah. like this is a 90 year old woman who's willing to take a chance on this because she thinks it's going to help other exactly. people. You know, supposedly Obama and Bush and Clinton have all said they're going to take the vaccine so they'll show other people that it's okay. Maybe right. we're maybe we're at a turning point where this just horrible nightmare might be over soon. I mean, or not relatively soon. That was just like such a beautiful moment just to see that that, like, maybe we'll get past this at some point. Maybe this isn't just going to go on forever, which is what it's felt like since it began. Who knows?
1: Absolutely. I I agree too. Um, I, you know, when I watched the article, I was like, wow, this is, this is actually happening. And then when I saw the email about it being soon to be available for, for us, I thought, oh my God, like, this is, this is actually happening. I thought we were going to see the vaccine sometime in the beginning of next year, but the fact that it's being rolled out now, and they're like, hey, here it is, like, let's, you know, let's do it, and I want, like I said, I want to, but, you know, there's a little part of me that's nervous about it, (laughs) because everything is so new, this is so nuts, everything, everything about what has happened in the last nine months is so out of my understanding of what could have ever happened in my lifetime. And so, like I said, I I'm going to get it done, but I would love this to be over. And if that vaccine does what it's supposed to do, then awesome. Fuck, I can't wait. And I can't wait to see my family, see my yeah. friends. It, it, I don't even want to think about it too much because, you know, I don't want to assume anything cuz if this year taught me anything or this pandemic has taught me anything it's like you just don't assume anything um, anything could pretty much happen. So I'm hoping, I'm hopeful. <laughs> so we'll see. I mean, I'll keep you posted definitely on how this vaccine situation ends up playing out um, and how they're distributing it to, in my hospital. Um, but yeah, but like I said, I, we just got the first email that said, hey, we're getting it. It's going to be available soon. Think about it. <laughs> that's exactly what i'm doing
0: (laughs) thank you for spending so much time talking with me about this stuff i really appreciate it i've learned so much
1: yeah of course um thank you for listening (laughs) to my thoughts on all this and my experiences so i appreciate it
0: So thank you for uh, tuning in for another episode of The Tactile World. Um, thank you so much to Tony Martinez for sharing her time and her experiences and revisiting, you know, uh, some extraordinarily challenging and difficult experiences um, in the early days of the pandemic. Um, I would just emphasize again that this interview was done in uh, December 2020. Um, so in some ways, it's a picture of a gone world. Um, but in some important ways, it's a very similar world to our own. Um, Some things have changed, some things have not. Uh, In future installments, we're going to be talking to other people who perform uh, the work of care in a variety of different contexts. Um, Some that we might think of as uh, very uh, familiarly um, caregiving roles, and some that maybe are a little bit outside of that box. But anyway, um, thank you for listening. We hope that these interviews and these discussions are... Um, giving some window into um, the life of work and the life of care um, in our, our today's world and in our um, you know recent past, um, maybe going back even further in some cases. But um, thank you for listening. All right, bye bye.